Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. We are in the midst of a sermon series about the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And, of course, we know that in the Old Testament there is uh, often reference to uh, this command to care for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And it's not really about those particular categories. It's really about those who are vulnerable. Those who don't have access in the society, whatever it may be. Those who can't, uh, really can't do for themselves in ways uh, that they even might wish to do for themselves. But there are very vulnerable people. And so we come to this story of the widow of Zarephath here in 1 Kings. And we really, we get a a widow, we get an orphan because uh, the boy doesn't have a male figure. And of course, in the ancient world, uh, women are property, so he really doesn't have a proper name or place. So in some ways, he's an orphan. And you get a stranger because you've got Elijah in a foreign place. You get all three elements coming together in this story. But you have to set the context of it. Uh, As we heard earlier here with the kids, there was a great drought in the land. Now, we understand in the U.S. we're kind of in a drought, but but the way uh, uh, to really get a sense of what's going on in this text would be to think of the drought uh, that exists in Africa. Right when when the drought uh, comes to them and they have no way to get water, they can't transfer it from one place to another, and then the livestock 
are gone. And then there are no crops. And as a result, you end up with a famine and a lot of people who are starving. That is the kind of situation. All of the Middle East is in this place where uh, there's a drought and a famine. And in the midst of this, notice that even the greatest man of God, Elijah, he can't, he can't fix the drought. Right? There are times we feel like we've got to do something, but there are things that are so great, we are not the ones. Only God can end the big problem. But there's always a role for us in a smaller sense. And God comes to Elijah and he says, uh, go to Zarephath and there a widow's going to take care of you. Now, if I'm Elijah, listen, I'm going to say, wait, what? Zarephath? Zarephath is a Phoenician city. Zarephath is not a place where you're going to find one of the tribes of Israel. He is being sent to the pagan land. He's being sent to the Gentiles. Why would he go to meet a widow there? Well, one of the interesting things, if you backtrack to chapter 16, and probably comes into play a little bit here, is the fact that the king over the land right now is Ahab. Now, Ahab is not a very good king of Israel. And Ahab is the one who marries Jezebel. And guess where Jezebel comes from? Yes, Sidon, the Phoenician area where now Elijah is being sent. Now, when I hear this, I think, okay, God is trying to teach something to Elijah. You know, so many times we have plans about what we're going to do and where we're going to go and how we're going to do it. And God's like, no, you know, I think I'd rather you do this. And you're like, no, why would I go there? Why would I do that? And God's like, because I know better than you and there's something there you need to learn. And certainly... Elijah is going to learn a lesson that the one true God, Yahweh, is way more powerful than the God that these people uh, inside and serve, which is uh, the God Baal, supposedly the God of rain, who isn't doing them much good at this point in the drought. And, you know, later on, Elijah's going to have to face the 800 priests of Baal. So maybe there's a lesson in that, that, you know what? maybe the one true God really is the one who has the power. But I think there's another thing that Elijah is learning because, you know, Jezebel is going to be this great threat to him, but now Elijah is also learning, and so are the readers of this text, that not all of the Phoenicians are bad people. Right? Sometimes we think Putin, oh, he's such a terrible guy. Those Russians are terrible. And and the Word of God is always saying, no, you know, you get some bad apples in the barrel, but not all of them are bad. This widow woman is a pretty good kind of person. So there's a lot to learn when we're willing to go where God would ask us to go and to do what God would ask us to do even if it doesn't feel like the thing we had in mind. You know, it's like that proverb that says human beings plan, but God's way is always going to be the thing that comes to fruition. So it might just be a little easier if we just went with the flow and let God lead us. Okay, so now we get... Elijah there in Zarephath, he sees the widow woman and he says, hey, go get me some water. I mean, 
he's kind of a little bit, like, rude, you know. If he, it seems like, hey, woman, get me some water. And, and, you know, it's a drought, so water is precious. But she's willing, you know, she's willing still, the little she has, she's willing to give a little water to uh, this guy who's passing by. And then, as she's going, he's like, oh, and by the way, bring me a pita bread when you come back. She's like, I don't have anything. What are you asking of me? All I got, you know, you can hear her. All I got is a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, and I'm going to mix that up for my son and I, and then we're going to lay down and just wait to die. Because really, they've got nothing left. They have come to the end, and, you know, she is, she is uh, resolved that my fate is that I can, I can no longer feed my son or myself, and we're just going to have to wait to die. And that's when Elijah's like, oh, no, you know what, trust in, in the one true God, and it's all going to be good, do as I say. Now, the woman, I think, is at a place where what has she got to lose, Right? Uh, she doesn't have anybody there where she lives who's helping her. Uh, her God ball is not doing a lick of good for any of those people, right? It's supposed to be the rain God, no. And so she does it, and miraculously, there is enough for all three of them to survive the famine and the drought. They all are able to live. Now, when we read this story, I think there are at least three things uh, that it places before us as God's people, as followers of Christ, and asks us to think about and pay attention to. And the first one is this idea that the three of them alone could not survive this famine. But God brought the three of them together. They trusted in God, and together they were better than they would have been on their own. You know, this is life in God. We have this vertical relationship with God, whom we are supposed to trust and listen to and follow, and at the same time we have a vertical relationship, the love of others. We are to be in communities with God and with others. And, you know, if we're not right there in the midst of this, we're going to have more trouble. But the whole idea of the gospel is that we come together and we're better together. Listen, I don't really get people who say, you know, I believe in God, but I don't need those people. Because the heart of the gospel is that we need God and we need one another, and that when we come together, we are stronger. Whether you have a little to give or a lot to give, whether you have a lot of money or just a a few cents, it doesn't matter what you have to bring, just that you bring what you have to give. And you know this. Every scientific study shows that people who are generous, people who give to others are happier, they're more content, they're more satisfied with their lives. The truth of the matter is we are better together and if we are following God, we are called to live in community and to care for one another. But the second thing that is clearly going on in this story is the idea that God calls us to go to people who aren't our own. That God calls us to reach outside the walls of our building. That God 
calls us to help and to be with those who are in need. But every one of us has this experience. How do you know who really needs help? Right? I mean, uh, if, uh, I know for a fact that if we're, we're out driving our car in any given day, we're going to come across 30 people on street corners. And if we were giving all of them money and stuff, pretty soon we'd be on a street corner with our own little sign. You know, need help, give money. You know, there's always this thing about we see in a mirror dimly. We do not have perfect wisdom. We do not have perfect knowledge. How do we know who we are to serve? That, I think, is a fundamental question. And, of course, part of it is, well, you know, what does God say? But it's always one of the dilemmas we face is who do we serve and how do we Uh, There uh, was a man by the name of Harold Wilkie. Uh, He died about 20 years ago, but he lived most of his life as a minister. Uh, uh, Harold Wilkie had a wife and kids. He lived a fairly ordinary kind of life, but what made uh, Harold Wilkie uh, into a household word, at, at least at one point in time, was that he was one of the biggest advocates behind uh, the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. He took it upon himself to fight for those who were disabled in one way or another to make sure that they had access to to everything. Uh, You know, if you're in a wheelchair and you come up to the church and it's got a bunch of stairs, you are made into an outsider. You are made into someone who is vulnerable. And so he did his best to fight for the rights of people with disabilities. And as a result, like we have lists in our church, that there is now a law that requires us to open doors and and make a way for people who might have disabilities. Now, the interesting thing about Harold Wilkie is he went to the signing of the law with President George Bush. We have a picture of that's him in the back. And you know the president will always hand out pens and you will notice that Harold Wilkie is taking the pen with his foot. That Harold Wilkie was born without arms and everything he did in life he had to use his feet or his neck or his chin And there's a very interesting story about when he was a little boy and his mother invited the women in her Bible study over to the house. And during that time, she was telling, you know, Harold, oh, go do this, Harold, go do that. And finally, one of the two of the ladies in that Bible study said, why don't you help your son? And Mrs. Wilkie said, I am helping him. You see, she had the wisdom to know that by not over-functioning for her son, she would give him the opportunity to learn to do for himself. We understand that with our little kids, that if they're learning to do something and every time they can't, we step in, they'll never learn to do it on their own. Sometimes we have to know when to hold back our help and when to offer our help because it makes a difference in an individual life. 
And really, the only way we can discern whether to give or to not, whether to help or to not, when we come upon an individual, is to search what the Spirit is telling us. You know, Elijah hears the word of the Lord. You know what it's like at times to be somewhere and you feel that the Lord is asking you to do something or to go somewhere. And you know what? Even if we don't do the right thing in that situation, we don't help or we do help and it isn't what we should or shouldn't have done, the one thing that matters to God is the heart, the spirit out of which we did that. If we try to help or we say that, that I can't do uh, because we love God and love our neighbor, because our desire is to please God, even if we make a mistake, God is okay with it because our intentions, our motivations, our heart was in the right place. So whenever we get in those places, do I or don't I, it's always a matter of saying, Lord, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And then the last thing is this. You know, we live in a time when the suffering of the world actually seems overwhelming. We live in a time when sometimes you feel paralyzed because, you know, listen, no time before in human history has there been a moment when you could see everything in the world real time. You know, once upon a time, a war, you know, two weeks later, you would get the news about what happened, but you weren't sitting watching the battle. Right? We now live in a time where if there's a famine, we see it. If there's a war, we see it. If there's a tornado, an earthquake, you name it, we're in the middle of it. But then we are reminded, Elijah wasn't called by God to fix the world. Elijah wasn't called by God to take care of the drought. What Elijah was called to do was to go to one person. What Elijah was called to do was to help this one person that he came across that God sent him to help. You see, God is asking us all the time to do what is right there for us to do. Think about this. We, we marvel at Jesus' healing ministries. How many people He touched and healed? How many people didn't He touch and heal? How many people were living in Palestine in Jesus' day who were praying, maybe He'll come across my path and He never did? That's why we are sent. That's why Jesus has disciples. It's like each one help one. That's all that God asks of us. Not to save the world. That's the job of Jesus Christ. Our job is to help and save one person in need. And so the question comes before us. Who today is the widow, the orphan, the stranger that might cross your path? Who today is the one that me, you, each of us can make a difference in their lives? Because that's what the Lord God asks of us as people who follow Christ. Is to go to the widow of Zarephath. As strange as it might seem. And to help her live. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.